Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. All right. Well, it's good to see so many of you. Welcome to all those of you who are new, uh, especially new students. We're so glad you've, you're here. You've already accomplished something amazing and that you survived Freshers' Week. And um, we are glad that you're here. And, you know, at Antioch, we love students. We, uh, our Antioch kind of grew out of a student ministry in the United States and has since spread all around the world. So it's one of the reasons that we're here in Sheffield is because of the 60,000 students that come here every year to get an education. So we're glad you're here. And today we are continuing in a series that I've been doing over the last several weeks called Disciple. And a lot of people, you know, we hear this word and we associate it with the Bible or we associate it with Christianity and the church. But I think this is important for us to talk about because being a disciple isn't just a Christian thing. Actually, any, whether you realize it or not, all of us are disciples of someone or something. Now, some of that is conscious discipleship. You know, think you intentionally choose to submit yourself to a person, to a, an ideology, to a belief system, and you're, you're very aware of and, and kind of putting yourself under uh, people that, that you want to disciple you in one way or another. You may not think of it in those terms, but that's what's happening. But a lot of it in our culture comes in the form of subconscious discipleship in the sense that you know, uh, you don't even realize that discipleship is happening. And so whether we like it or not, you know, different, there's all kinds of different ways that that happens. You know, our family of origin, for example, is one of the ways that we're discipled. You know, that's how your, you know, the, the, your family shows you a way of doing life that forms you and shapes you. We're formed and shaped by all kinds of things. Maybe it's our culture and our community at school or in our workplace. Um, we're, we're formed and shaped by the arts and by advertising and by media. And we like to think, you know, that we're free thinkers. You know, we like to think that that all that that we kind of look at the facts and come to our conclusions and and we and make our decisions for ourselves. But we vastly underestimate the power of our culture to shape us. You know, it's like the, in the air that we breathe, and it shapes us, and it forms us into its image. Now, all of these things, you know, they, 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 like our values get changed, our beliefs get changed, our, our understanding of what's right and wrong is impacted by these things. And, and one of the, the primary ways that I think that, that we experience um, discipleship through our culture is through the entertainment industry. You know, stories are one of the most powerful mediums of conveying truths or conveying lessons that people want us to receive. And I think part of the reason for that is that, is that when we hear a story, there's something in our, the way we're wired that our brains kind of, our analytical brains kind of shut down a little bit and our hearts open up. And, and we become much more open to, store, to, uh, to messages that we may not have been open to receiving if somebody had just given it to us as a propositional statement. Jesus knew this, and that's why he told parables all the time. He was always telling, uh, teaching people in the form of parables, and, and as a result, you know, like, that's, that's why, you know, most of, when you think about Jesus, you think of parables like the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son or things like that, and all of those stories carry messages. 
And so one of the things that I think happens is because we spend a lot of time watching film and watching telly and watching YouTube, and so as a result, I think Hollywood is actually discipling our culture. They're using their stories that we consume all the time to shape our values, to shape our attitudes, to shape our understanding of right and wrong, and as a, res- you know, that, and as a result, we are being discipled by Hollywood in a lot of ways, and I think that's kind of a scary thought. <laughs> I know that's my story. Like, growing up, I spent way too much time watching telly, watching films, and I think about the sitcoms that I watch and the films that I watch over and over and over again, and, and that shaped so much of how I understood life, particularly in the area of dating and relationships. I mean, I, I took all my cues from Hollywood, and then as I, as I began to grow in my relationship with Jesus, I realized, oh, actually, <laughs> what I learned from the entertainment industry isn't necessarily uh, uh, what Jesus would have me do. And I had to unlearn a lot of what had been, I'd picked up through subconscious discipleship. But my point in all this is that we're all disciples of someone or something. And if that's true, then why not be a disciple of Jesus? I mean, If you're a Christian, that's actually what you signed up for, because to be a Christian means that you are a disciple of Jesus. But what do we mean by that? You know, what does it mean to actually be a disciple? And that's what we've been talking about throughout this series. But I believe discipleship and being a disciple of Jesus is really organized around three core values, and they're these. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be with him, to become like him, and to do the things that Jesus did. That is the essence, I believe, of what the Christian life is all about. And so we, as disciples of Jesus, we want to organize our lives around these core values. And last week, we started going through these one by one. Uh, We looked at being with Jesus, and we talked about how that's the foundation for everything in the Christian life. Becoming like Jesus is the, you know, everything, those, those last two things are the overflow of the first thing, which is just simply learning how to be with him. And we see this all the time in life. You know, um, during lockdown, I was playing catch with my sons, and uh, I noticed that, especially my youngest, Nate, he's five years old, he would, whenever he'd throw me the ball, he'd make this strange facial expression. He'd go, mm, you know, and throw it to me. And then I realized, oh, that's what I do. Whenever I throw the ball, I kind of give it one of these, you know, kind of this, I don't know why I do that, but that's what I do. I didn't even realize that I was doing it. And Nate, because he spends time with me and watches me and studies me, he just picked up my mannerisms and my, my, my way of doing things. And it's the same way in our relationship with Jesus. When we spend time with him, he just kind of rubs off on us and we become like him. We begin to think like him. We begin to talk like him. We begin to act like him. We begin to do the things that Jesus did, just like Nate, you know, made, made the, my throwing facial expression you know, as a result of spending time with me. So in Luke chapter 6, there's a passage that Yin read for us this morning, and I want to look at it again. It's this short but potent parable. Jesus says this. He says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? That's, that's it, like a, a two-sentence story. 
But what's going on here? Well, in this first part where he's talking about a blind man leading a blind man, he's actually, you know, this whole parable is actually about discipleship. And that first sentence about the blind is about, he's kind of taking a shot at the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, I'm sure you're familiar, but in case you haven't read, the, read much of the Gospels, the Pharisees were the religious and cultural leaders of their day. They were the religious elite, and they were full of religious pride. They thought, we know God's commands better than anyone else. We practice God's commands better than anyone else, and therefore, we deserve and should be the leaders of our nation and train everybody else to do the same things that we're doing. And Jesus was... Uh, mildly concerned about that, you might say, because the problem with pride is that it blinds you. That's why he calls them blind men, is because they're pride, they're prideful, and that pride, it blinds you. It blinds you to your weaknesses. It blinds you to your vulnerabilities. It blinds you to, to the places that you may not have it right. And so Jesus is saying to them, you prideful Pharisees, you think you've got it all together, but pride has made you blind and now you think you're, and now you're leading people astray, and you don't even know it. And then he carries on, and he says, "A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher." So this is the point of discipleship: is to be like our teacher. Jesus was a rabbi, and, and he trained, uh, and, and in that rabbinical system in first century Israel, uh, the whole point was that when you chose to follow a rabbi to be his disciple, you left everything. You followed him. You stayed with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You, you not only learned his teaching, but you saw how he, he interacted with his wife. You saw how he parented his children. You saw how he dealt with the beggar on the street and the rich person in the synagogue. You saw everything about his life, and the goal was that you you would become like him. But notice that it takes training. He says there that, that when you're fully trained, then you will be like, like your teacher, which tells us that, that, that discipleship is a process. Because if you will one day be fully trained, then by implication, then, then there's, there's a stage when you're partially trained, right? There's a, this whole thing takes time. It's a process that happens by stages. You know, we don't suddenly wake up one day and we're suddenly fully like Jesus. I mean, I wish it worked that way. I wish you could just snap your fingers and boom, oh, you know, I'm like Jesus. But it doesn't happen naturally, right? It, it, this, this actually takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work. So I think Jesus is warning us here that, that that we need to, that, or Jesus is telling us that, that the whole purpose of being a disciple is to become like the teacher. And then, he, you know, he says, he has, as he's warning us about the Pharisees, and he's saying, won't both fall into a pit? You know, he's warning us. He's saying, look, if you're going to be discipled by somebody, make sure you're following somebody who knows where they're going, who knows what they're doing, who, 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 know, who isn't going to fall, lead you into a pit. And I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves when you recognize, hey, we're all disciples of someone or something who is discipling you? And where are they leading you? Again, this is why I think following Jesus makes a lot of sense, because nobody had it figured out like Jesus did. He is the creator and the author of life. He knows how to, how to lead us into the abundant life he created us for. So today, as you might have gathered by now, I want to hone in on that second part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, which is becoming like Jesus. I want to I just talk about what I mean by that statement. You know, what does it mean to become like Jesus? And I want to 
Let's talk about the process that God uses to help us become like Jesus. You know, because if you think about it, what, what does it mean to become like Jesus? It's kind of a strange idea, you know. I, I, do, do I mean like you've got to have a beard and be a rabbi and probably just wear like, you know, robes or something and wander around Israel as an itinerant minister? Well, of course not. When I say, when we talk about becoming like Jesus, what do we mean? It means having the character of Jesus. Having the character and the nature of Jesus. You know, think about what it would have been like to be around Jesus during his earthly ministry. (laughs) What would you experience if you were in his presence? I mean, Jesus was somewhat unpredictable, and sometimes, like, sometimes he kind of lashes out at people, and sometimes he, he responds very differently than what you might expect. But I think what you can say about his character is that he wasn't an anxious person, he wasn't racked with anxiety all the time. He wasn't a self-centered, narcissistic leader. He was just trying to accumulate power and position and prestige and money. He, he wasn't an impatient person. He wasn't, a, a, you know, I think women felt safe in his presence. He was a man of purity. I think, I think Jesus, you know, I don't think he, became a, he came across as holier than thou or better than you. Although if anybody could have done that, Jesus could have done that. But the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was humble at heart, that he, he really did not, uh, he, he didn't come across as better than everyone he was around. And we see that because people were just drawn to him. The crowds were drawn to him. And, and even the, the kind of dregs of society, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, were, were drawn to Jesus, and they, they just wanted to be around him. And it's because of his character it's because of his nature. And so when we talk about becoming like Jesus, we're, we're saying we want to be like that. You know, Jesus was probably the most, uh, uh, well, I think he was the most emotionally healthy person who's ever lived. And his internal world, it was just shaped by his, under, his connection to the Father. He knew he was loved. He knew he was valued at a level that, that we have probably never experienced. And that formed him and it shaped him. And it, and it gave him just a stability that allowed him to, to do the things that he was called to do, not out of a desire to serve his own interests, but he, just as a way of serving the people, or of serving the world, really. And I believe, like, maybe another way of thinking about this would be the fruit of the Spirit, right? You remember the fruit of the Spirit? Paul wrote about this in Galatians 5. He says, the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things are a description, I believe, of the character, of the nature of Jesus. This is the internal world of Jesus. And that's where God wants to take you. He wants this to be the description of our internal world as well. He wants us to be able to really grow and develop love and joy and peace and patience and all the things that you see there. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't experience fear or anger or disappointment or, or uh, sadness from time to time. I mean, Jesus felt all those emotions. But we can learn to respond to whatever life throws at us as Jesus would if he were in our shoes. And I believe that that is a great description of what it looks like. But the question is, how? How does this happen? Like, how do we actually get the character and the nature of Jesus in our lives? You know, what what is that actually, what's the process that God uses? 
Because, I, you know, obviously, Christ-likeness is not our default setting, is it? It's uh, Christianity doesn't automatically make you like Jesus. Just because you say, I am a Christian, we're only just starting the journey at that point. There's a whole process that God uses to get us from, from the person we used to be into a person who is like Jesus. And the best way I know to describe it comes from uh, another pastor. His name is John Mark Comer. And um, he's, I, I love the way he describes this. It's the best imagery I've seen. So I'm going to borrow from his example today because I think it's a good overview of how uh, Christ-likeness works. And so Comer calls it this. He calls it the diamond of Christ-likeness. The diamond of Christ-likeness. And there's four pieces to it. There's the Holy Spirit or God effort. There's spiritual disciplines, which is self-effort. There's community, which is others' effort. And there's the hard knocks of life, everyone's favorite. So I want to just take us through what each of these are because I think this will help you understand the process that God takes you through as a disciple of Jesus. So we'll start with the Holy Spirit. And what we first need to understand about the Holy Spirit is that we cannot become like Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Like, it's actually impossible. It doesn't matter how hard you try. No amount of self-will or determination or discipline is going to help you become like Jesus all by yourself. Christianity is not a self-help method. <laughs> Remember what we said last week, that, that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That's what he said in John 15, 5. Like, you can't be, he said, apart from me, remain in me as I in you. And you'll bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And the whole point of that is saying you can't become like me unless you remain connected to me, unless you're with me, unless there's this, this uh, ongoing connection between us, you can't become like me. But connected to me, that is where you begin to become like Jesus. So that's why we talked about this last week and why it's so important for us to, to simply learn how to be with Jesus, not just in our morning prayer time, but all throughout our day. Because if we try to, like, you know, for example, live out the fruits of the Spirit on our own, we can't just say, all right, I may be racked with anxiety right now, I may be really struggling, but I know I'll just be peaceful today because that's the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't really work, does it? I mean, I've certainly tried that. I'm like, I'm going to be peaceful today. I'm not going to be anxious about this. And that lasts like about one second, and then the anxiety just kind of washes right back over it, right? No. See, those things are all the fruit of, the result of being connected to the Holy Spirit. Those things develop in our lives when we're connected to God. It's almost a, by, it is a byproduct of our connection to Him. So being like Jesus doesn't happen without our connection to the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes that connection and, and that transformation can be very dramatic and sudden. You know, one encounter with the Holy Spirit can accomplish more than a lifetime of self-effort. You know, I've heard so many stories, and I'm sure you have too, of people that have been struggling in various ways, and suddenly they encounter God, and boom, it is gone. They are set free. And it is just a glorious thing. You know, and if you think about the, in the Bible, that's what we see. Jesus is going around, he's, in, he's praying for the sick, and they're being instantaneously healed. He's, he's delivering the demonically oppressed, and they're being set free, and they're becoming new people. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. He's on his way to go kill and arrest Christians in Damascus, and then he encounters the presence of Jesus manifested right before him, and instantly he's changed, and he goes a totally different direction. 
So these encounters with God, they're very real, and I believe God wants you to encounter him. If you don't feel like you've ever had that before, then ask him for it. Start pursuing it. I mean, that's my story. When I was at university, I'd been a Christian since I was a kid, but when I got to university, I was uh, really questioning things. I was racked with, with all kinds of doubts, and I was depressed and really, really struggling. And then I met a friend. He invited me to his house for dinner. They prayed for me. And within a couple of the, uh, two nights later, I encountered the Holy Spirit in such a powerful way that I was never the same again. It's an amazing thing. But here's the thing. God wants to let you encounter his Holy Spirit, and, and, and you'll probably have a, I think all of us will at some point in our lives encounter God in a dramatic way if you keep seeking him. But it does mean that we need to position ourselves for those moments. I mean, when I had my encounter, it was because I was hungry. I was pursuing. I went out to dinner with, or went to my friend's house for dinner, and that's when they prayed for me. We can't just be passive about it. We, we position ourselves to encounter God. So if, you're, if you feel like, well, nothing's really happening for me, well, well, what are you doing to position yourselves to encounter God? You know, that's, that's why we do things at the end of our service. We invite people to come forward for prayer. You know, we believe in prophetic ministry. All those kinds of things are, are ways, opportunities for God to just break in to our everyday lives and give us an encounter with him that helps, him, helps us become like him. But while encounters definitely do happen, I, I, I've got to say, that's not the norm. That's not where you live your everyday life. Everyday life is the work of the Holy Spirit happens in slow and subtle ways. You, you, and you only notice the change over time. It's like with my kids. I have four kids. And when Lauren and I are with them every day, we don't notice how much they're growing physically. But when we fly back home to America or something, or, or family comes over here to visit, the first thing out of grandparents' mouths are, oh my goodness, you've grown so much, because they've been separated. They, they, they haven't watched that process. And so we need to, uh, the, 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 the process of growth is something that happens in slow and subtle ways. We don't necessarily notice when it's happening. But over time, you can step back and you can say, wow, I'm a different person than I was three years ago, 10 years ago. God's been working in my life in quiet and subtle ways. So You've got to just trust that God is deeply committed to making you become like Jesus. Like, he's really, really committed to that. And whether you are having big dramatic encounters or not, you've got to trust that he is moving in your life. Which brings me to the second part, which is spiritual disciplines or self-effort. <laughs> And there's a tension to this whole thing because a lot of us, especially in the Protestant world, because of our belief in grace and, and, and all that, we think, well, this is all on God. We, we like to just sort of absolve ourselves of responsibility in the process of becoming like Jesus because we think, well, this is all about God. It's he, it's all, like I can't become like God. We take that first part that can't become like Jesus without the Holy Spirit, and we think it's all about the Holy Spirit, but it's not. I'd put it this way, we cannot become like Jesus without our participation. It involves our will in a, coming into alignment and agreement with what the Holy Spirit is doing. Uh, I heard this saying that without him, we can't, and without us, he won't. Does that make sense? So without him, we can't become like Jesus, but without us participating in that process, he won't help us become like Jesus. God is not a, a helicopter parent. 
You know what I mean by that? It's the kind of parent that whenever their kid is having difficulties or troubles, that parent just swoops in like a helicopter and rescues the kid and pulls them out. And that is appropriate at times. But if that's all that the parent ever does, then the child never learns to take responsibility for their actions. You know, if, if all I did was rescue my kids when they were in trouble, the lesson they would learn is, I, it doesn't really matter what I do because dad is going to come to the rescue. <laughs> but God doesn't want us to be like that. Of course, there are times when God sovereignly intervenes and rescues us, but that's not the norm. God wants us to learn to take responsibility for our lives and for our decisions and for our actions. And there is a place where we have to bring our will into alignment with what God is wanting to do in forming Jesus in us. And as I said, we can't be passive about it. We can't just kind of kick back and say, well, God's going to do it all. You know that old phrase, if you've been around charismatic circles, let go and let God. (laughs) That does not apply to this situation. (laughs) We are active participants in the process of becoming like Jesus. And one of the ways that we participate is through spiritual disciplines, which is a terrible name for this thing. (laughs) Spiritual disciplines is like being told by your doctor, hey, you need to eat your vegetables and you need to start an exercise routine. Like, we know he's right, or we know that doctor's right, but, but we don't necessarily want to do those things, right? That just because I know the doctor, just because I know it's good for me to eat uh, vegetables, just still does not make me excited about eating carrots and kale. <laughs> so a better way of describing these would be um, spiritual practices or habits. It's a lifestyle. And what I mean by these, you know, the traditional spiritual habits or practices are things like reading the Bible, praying, fasting, uh, silence and solitude. We talked about that last week. Studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, uh, community, church, Sabbath, simplicity, celebration is one of those disciplines. Gratitude is one of those disciplines. All of these are practices that help us become more like Jesus. And those are just, that's not a complete list. There's, there's plenty more. And, and uh, you know, as I was thinking about this, sometimes you might have disciplines that God leads you into that are, are zeroing in on a specific issue that you might have. I was reading about the author Dallas Willard. He was a, he's a well-known uh, Christian thinker, and he was actually the director of uh, the school of philosophy, or the, he was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California for a number of years. In one of his classes, a student aggressively challenged Willard with some questionable facts, and instead of putting the young man in his place, Willard just concluded class for the day. And so somebody came up to him afterwards and said, hey, why, why did you let that slide? Like, that was a terrible argument. Why didn't you contradict him or point out the error of his ways? And, and Willard said, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. Some of us might need to practice that discipline of not having the last word. I mean, who doesn't want to have the last word? I mean, that's like the source of a lot of my angry fantasies that, I, that I'm sure you don't have, but I might have, you know, where I get into arguments with people and then I can't think of anything to say, but then 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, God, oh, that's the perfect response. I wish I would have thought of it. But maybe God's enforcing with me because I never think of a good response at the time, <laughs> the discipline of not having the last word. So God might, you know, God might lead you into different forms of discipline and training. 
And that's the thing. This is about training and not trying. And the emphasis on church is often try harder, be more disciplined, work harder. Just you got to gut it out. But willpower will only get you so far in dealing with your anger problem or your alcoholism or your gossip habit. We need training. Dallas Willard, again, he says it this way. He says, to train means arranging our life around those practices that enable us to do what we cannot now do by direct effort. So the point of training is to receive power so that we arrange our life, so we arrange our life around practices through which we get power. So what he's saying there is that there, this is, you know, spiritual disciplines are a simultaneous acknowledgement that on our own we can't fix ourselves. But it's also a way of positioning ourselves to receive from God what we need to be transformed. And so training is about submitting our will to the Holy Spirit, like training our will to be submitted to the Holy Spirit rather than our flesh. So maybe an analogy would be in running, for example. (laughs) Um, You know, if we were living a completely sedentary lifestyle and then went out and tried to run a marathon, we would almost certainly fail. And yet people, in fact, the London Marathon is happening this morning, and I think, you know, normally there's 40,000 people that run the, the London Marathon every year, so clearly running a marathon is possible. But why? Well, it's because people train. <laughs> they get up, and they, they go out, and they exercise themselves. And over time, they, they, they run further, they run faster, a little bit more, a little bit more, week after week after week, and eventually their muscles are trained, their cardiovascular system is trained, they're, men, they're uh, mentally trained to be able to run a marathon. And what was impossible before becomes possible after. And that's what the spiritual disciplines do. You know, we think, oh, I could never be like Jesus. And we, so we don't even try a lot of times. We think, oh, I'm so far away from that that I'm not, I'm, you know, what's the point? Well, you may not be able to be like Jesus right now, but over time, and by utilizing and practicing spiritual disciplines, you can learn how to follow Jesus. You develop the capacity to become like him. Does that make sense? That's what spiritual disciplines are accomplishing in our lives. Thirdly, we've got community or others' effort. (laughs) Now, community is the context in which discipleship to Jesus takes place. I mean, you can't do it alone. I mean, none of this you can do alone. And the big lie is that so many, that, that so many Christians believe is that Christianity is just about me and Jesus. It's about just doing the Christian life on our own. We don't need others. And this is, again, this is a product of being discipled by our culture because our culture values independence. It, it, it values um, being self-sufficient and because we value those things, we've, we've brought that into our faith. And we think, well, I've got to be self-reliant and self-sufficient and independent, and, and I don't need anybody else to follow Jesus. And while it is true that your relationship with God is a personal one and nobody else can take responsibility for it, the reality is you can't become like Jesus without community. I mean, think about it. Jesus did it this way. He had not just one disciple. He had hundreds of disciples. And the 12 who were with him that he picked out, they went on a three-year camping trip with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been camping, but that is some intense community. 
I can only handle it for a few days. I can't imagine three years of just taking extended hikes and, and you know, not showering for long periods of time and all those different things. Wow, like people would really get on your nerves, and that is part of the point of community because community is a revealer. It's like squeezing a sponge. You see what's inside of you when pressure is applied. So the water comes out of the sponge, and, and when pressure of community is applied to you, you see what's inside of you. You see, oh, maybe I'm not as patient as I thought. Maybe I'm not as, as ang- or not, not as um, loving as I thought. Maybe I'm more selfish than I realized. I mean, newlyweds discover this for themselves, right? You know, they, they, uh, they think that everything is going well. They think they're a godly person, and then they get married, and they're like, what's happened to me? I'm such a jerk. Like, why am I, why am I so selfish all of a sudden? Why am I so angry all the time? Why am I so impatient with this person that I loved and just committed my life to? Well, it's because those things were there all along, but the community, the intense community of marriage reveals what's going on inside of you. Secondly, community is so important because we don't have everything we need in ourselves to become more like Jesus. We're only being given, I thought about giving everybody a piece of the puzzle today, of a puzzle, you know, because that's what we are. We are one piece in the puzzle of the body of Christ. We need everybody else to see what that whole puzzle looks like. We have our little piece, and often I think we think our piece is the whole puzzle, our preferences, our desires, our, our, our gifts, and our, our, our various you know, leanings and values. We think that's all there is to it. What we don't know is that we're just one piece of the puzzle, and everyone else, uh, the rest of the church, they're the other pieces, and all together we form the, the picture, the tapestry, the mosaic that God is creating through the church. So... We need other people to become more like Jesus. And, and you know, community, it's messy. <laughs> community can be challenging. I mean, if you've ever been a part of, you know, like normally we, when we choose relationships, we, we choose the people that we marry. We choose the people that we hang out with. But the challenge in church is you often can't choose the people that you're doing community with, that you're intentionally choosing to be disciples of Jesus with. Um, and, and that is part of the point. <laughs> That's part of the point because when you're with people that are like you all the time, that doesn't really challenge you very much. But when you're with people who are different than you and maybe who are a bit strange or have this issue or that issue, then it causes you to grow. It refines you. And by the same token, those people that are different from you bring things into your life that you desperately need. But community is challenging, you know? Uh, Like, uh, I love the analogy that I heard one person say that uh, Christian community is like a bunch of porcupines huddled together on a cold night. You know, they just poke each other over and over again. And that, that is, you know, that is why people don't like community. And I get that. But that's also the point is because it helps you become like Jesus. It helps you learn how to love and be patient and forgive and show kindness and show goodness and show generosity. All those things that were part of the character of Jesus It happens in the context of community. But I don't want to totally bash on community because let's also remember that community is where encouragement comes from. You know, the analogy of the the coals, where if coals are all together in in a uh, fireplace, then the coals stay hot for much, much longer. But if you pull a coal out and set it by itself, it quickly loses all of its heat. 
And so when we're together, we help one another. We spur one another on towards good works. We spur one another on towards Jesus. We encourage one another. When we fall down, we pick each other up, and we need that. Nobody is going to walk through this life as a follower of Jesus and not hit discouragement at times. And that's when we need our brothers and sisters in the Lord to come along and encourage us and stand with us and support us and pray for us when we need it. So, finally, we've got the hard knocks of life. Everybody's favorite, suffering. Yay. (laughs) The hard truth is we cannot become like Jesus without adversity. I mean, we don't, we don't really advertise that very much as a church, but that's the reality. If you want to become like Jesus, then you are signing up for suffering, for adversity, for trials. James puts it this way, consider it pure joy, <laughs> my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't know whether to laugh or cry at that verse, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let your perseverance Finish it, or let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. <laughs> uh, I just, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time seeing trials that way. I just don't like think, woohoo, another trial, yay. When COVID hit, I was not like, yes, this is going to be great. I'm going to become more like Jesus because of this. Now, of course, we're not like celebrating the fact that there's a pandemic and that other people are suffering, but, but what he's saying is that, that as Christians, how you respond to suffering really changes because God can redeem anything. What's the famous verse, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, and that includes your suffering. Now, it doesn't mean God ordains your suffering. It doesn't mean he's behind all your suffering. But what what is awesome about it is that God redeems your suffering. And that changes our perspective. But don't miss what he's saying there at the end, that it's the suffering that helps you become mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, that adversity that you experience helps make you more like Jesus. It helps make you complete. If you don't have that adversity, if everything is just a bed of roses, then you're going to be lacking something. And we all intuitively know this. How many stories have you heard, Christian or non-Christian, where where somebody's gone through some horrendous ordeal, and they say, look, I would never have chosen this, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And for sure, the suffering that I've been through personally, as I look back, I would say that. You know, I, I, I did not sign up for that. I didn't want it. But it shaped me, it formed me, and it made me more like Jesus. So, you know, we often like to say suffering can make you better. But that's not a given. That, it depends on your response. That's why James is saying you've got to consider it pure joy, right? He's, he's talking about the attitude with which you receive it. Because if you don't receive or don't respond to suffering with pure joy or don't, or don't have the right attitude, instead of making, it, making you better, it can make you bitter. So if your attitude when hardships and trial comes, when somebody lets you down, when somebody, you know, your car plays up or, you're, or you get a grade on your assignment at school that, doesn't, that you weren't hoping for, when, when uh, you know, whatever hardship comes your way, we have a choice about how we're going to respond to it. And it can make us better or it can make us bitter. 
We can say, hey, this is something that I can rejoice in because God is going to redeem this. I don't know how he's going to redeem it, but I know somehow he's going to redeem it, and I'm going to become more like Jesus. Or we can say, I can't believe God let this happen to me. How could a good God allow suffering to happen in this world? And, you know, and we become bitter, and our hearts become hardened, and we become less like Jesus. But don't forget, when it comes to the hard knocks of life, we are never in this alone. Jesus is a suffering God. He suffered more than any of us could possibly understand on the cross. And he will be with you in the suffering. Lastly, just to wrap all this up, you'll notice across the bottom of this graphic is that this happens over time. And this is hard for us. We need to remember that, that the journey of discipleship is one that happens over decades, not days. Like I said earlier, we, we, we live in an instant everything world. We want it to happen immediately. We think, I've been a Christian now for like, you know, five days or five weeks. I should be there. <laughs> but that's not how it works. This takes years and years of just continuing to be with Jesus, walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, letting him rub off on you and train you so that you become like him. And so, like I was saying earlier with my kids and how, you know, their, their physical growth, we need to be willing to just kind of trust that God is working in the process over time. And over time, eventually, we'll be able to stand back and look and say, my, I'm a different person than I was then. And you'll find that your inner world begins to shift and change. And where you'll find that love replaces the anger and the outrage that you used to have. Or where joy replaces the bitterness that you used to live in. Or, or where peace replaces the crippling anxiety that used to plague you. Or where patience replaces that short temper that you had. Or where kindness replaces that your tendency to be sharp and critical with your words, and where goodness replaces selfishness, and where faithfulness replaces your inconsistency and your tendency to drift, and where gentleness replaces your harshness and your rough edges, and where self-control replaces your addictions. That's where God wants to take you. That's the inner world he wants you to have. That's what it means to become like Jesus. If you'll keep saying yes to him, if you'll be willing to submit yourself to all of those things, then he is going to transform us. Transform us. He is more committed to it than you are, believe me. So here's how I want to close. I want you to just go back. I want to go back to the question that I asked at the beginning of the service, which is, you know, who or what is discipling you? Who is the biggest influence on your life? And you might be able to tell that by looking at where you spend your time, who you spend your time with, who do you read the most, who do you listen to the most, who are you, who are you most influenced by, who is discipling you, and do you like where you're headed? If you projected where you're going right now out 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50 years, would you like where you wind up? I think we need to be aware of who is discipling us, who is influencing us, and then ask ourselves the question, do I want to be a disciple of Jesus? Do I, do I really want to follow him? It's a question we've been asking throughout this whole series, but I think it's worth 
saying again, it's one of my daily prayers. It's when I, when, one of the first things I say when I wake up is, Lord Jesus, I love you. I want to follow you today. I want to be your disciple. I want to be your apprentice. Show me the way I should go. Especially as we've been doing this series, it's become, Lord, teach me to be with you today. Help me to become like you. Help me to do the things that you did. But there's a daily renewal of that. And so I just want to take a moment here and just pause and give you some time to think about that. You know, who is it that's discipling you? like where they take where they're taking you. <laughs> and it may not be a person. It may be an ideology. It may be your family of origin. It may be friends or a spouse. That's the dominant influence on your life. I'm not saying all those are bad either. I just want you to be aware of who is it that's helping shape you? And then I just want you to ask yourself the question, am I willing to surrender to Jesus? Am I willing to live his way rather than my way? Do I want to become like him? <laughs> or do I want to go a different direction? in a song called Scandal of Grace. And if your heart cry this morning is, I want to follow Jesus, this song is a great declaration. The chorus is, all to be like you. I give my all to be like you. I give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one besides you. Forever the hope in my heart. So this is a song of surrender. It's a song of saying yes to Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing together. So Lord, we're so aware of how far short we fall. But Jesus, we thank you that you love us and you're committed to us. And that wherever we're at right now, wherever we are falling short or wherever we feel inadequate this morning, I thank you, God, that you meet us in that place. You offer us your hand and you say, come, follow me. Lord, make us people who are like you. That when people encounter us, Lord, they, they say, man, that, that person just reminds me of Jesus. Make us like you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.